and I'm not trying to start it early, but I do want to use a holiday and a holiday song as a lens or a sort of a way of introducing the psalm that will be in this morning. I'm curious too, I don't know if the song I'm using is still as well known as it was to me as a kid growing up. I may date myself here. Uh, how many here know or grew up singing Over the River and Through the Woods? Over the River. Wow, okay. Well, we're not, we're not so uh, different based on age. Okay, that's great. So you know it, and probably as I read some lyrics here, sorry the tune will be stuck in your head for the rest of the morning. That's your problem. Uh, but if you think of this, it's telling something of the joy, the impatience, the enthusiasm of, uh, and I think of children as I'm hearing this song in my own mind, making an annual pilgrimage to grandmother's house for the Thanksgiving Day celebration. And listen to the emotions. And that's primarily what I want. Uh, listen and think of kids, maybe in the back of your own car. You don't have to be in a sleigh to get the drift of where this is going or where it's coming from. So over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through white and drifted snow. Why does the horse know the way? Because the horse has traveled the same road many times before, at least once a year. The horse knows the way. This is an annual pilgrimage. Over the river and through the woods, trot fast my dapple gray. Spring over the ground like a hunting hound, for this is Thanksgiving Day. That horse can't go fast enough. We want to get there sooner. We, we want to get there as soon as we can. Over the river and through the woods and straight through the barnyard gate, we seem to go extremely slow. It is so hard to wait. Can you hear your children saying, are we there yet? That's what they're saying. Over the river and through the woods, now grandmother's cap I spy. Hurrah for the fun. Is the pudding done? Hurrah for the pumpkin pie. So you've really got this uh, sort of this sweet emotional memory in this song. So here's the children or here are the adults. There's an annual pilgrimage. They're going to a place. They're, they're going to a celebration. And as they think about it, their hearts and their minds are filled with the emotions of the good times from before. And that gives them this excitement and this enthusiasm for what they're going to go and participate in again. So it's just a great reminder. There's this tradition we have. I don't know if you have a family tradition like that or not. Something that you say it's a regular thing we do as a family. And maybe the adults and at least the kids, they're highly enthusiastic. We, we do this thing. It's a regular occurrence. And we're jazzed about it. And perhaps if not for a holiday, uh, even a vacation would be along this line as well. If I am able to get to the mountains in the summer, I do. And so that's an annual thing for me if I can get it and I think about it. And this song sort of mirrors that emotion, as you'll see in the song we're going to look at here in just a minute. There's a sense of expectation as I think about it. And I'm recalling past times there as I look forward to the way that's going to get me to my destination, and I'm going to hang out there, and then I'm, I'm going to bask, if you will, in the thoughts of what I've just participated in. And that's exactly where Psalm 84 is going to take us this morning. This describes the supreme longing the psalmist has in his desire to trek from his home through literally the, the land, wherever he's coming from, in Israel on the highways, to get, not to grandmother's house, but get, to get to God's house. And probably, it's probably another one of the songs that's, that was meant to inform this 
pilgrimage that the Jews would make to one or more of the annual feasts that would have been held in Israel. This is one of the songs of Zion. So it's thinking about I'm getting up to Jerusalem. So when you get into Psalms 120 through 134, these are called songs of ascents or songs of going up. And so the thought was the Jews would be singing those songs as they would go up on holiday. So they're ascending upwards to the central mountain region where Jerusalem was located. And they're, they're ascending up in Jerusalem to the Temple Mount to get to God's house. And so this song and the others like it are all on this same theme about wherever we are, whatever's going on in life, we are jazzed as we anticipate leaving our home where we're at in the moment so that we can get up to God's house and meet with Him. And we're going to do so, remember, especially on the feast. This would have been true at any time. But especially in the feast, it's the collection of the nation coming together to celebrate God together in His presence, in His house. This was their version, the song that we'll go through, of Over the River and Through the Woods. Alan Ross's really short summary is this. The truly devout long to go to pray in the sanctuary of the Lord where they realize His powerful presence through the manifestations of His grace and glory. So as we go through this, it's short. It's only 12 verses. We're going to break it up into sections so that we follow the psalmist's experience. So we're going to start with him at home. And there's this anticipation. And as he anticipates, he's remembering past times. And he has this sense of longing to be like the people who call people and animals, in fact, who call God's house their house. And he's going to get there, and it's very brief. His presence in the temple is described very super briefly in a prayer. And then he's going to assess that experience that he had. So that's the way the song breaks down, and that's the way we'll follow it. Uh, Psalm 84, hopefully if you've got your app or Bible open, uh, the, the introductory line is, For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And two things I want to point out here. So uh, the Giddeth, uh, the thought is the word comes from the city of Gath. We're not entirely sure what that means. There's one thought that this actually means it has something to do with Gath and with winemaking. The other thought is Giddeth is the name of an instrument that looks something like a guitar, a stringed instrument. It's going to be played along that line. Don't know for sure. This says it's one of the psalms of Korah. I think we've already done at least one song, but I did want to point out this morning. If you were a Jew back in the day and somebody talked to you about Korah, what might your first thought be? Because Korah is infamous in Israel. Korah is one of two rebels that rebelled against God and Moses in the Exodus account. So you can read it in number 16 when you go home. And Korah is a Levite, but he's not a priest. And Korah with Dathan, they come up and they tell Moses, hey, we're all as holy as you, and we can do anything you can do. And guys, Korah was summarily judged by God. Fire from heaven came down and consumed him and the other rebel Levites with him. That's Korah. That's Korah's name. These are Korah's descendants. Now think about this. The God that struck their forebear down in fiery judgment is the God in whose halls they call their home and worship Him. And this is hugely significant to me. It doesn't matter where we come from or where we start. It doesn't determine where we end up. 
So they bore a name, the sons, the descendants, and they'd be multiple generations later. But their forebear didn't determine how they ended up. And where you or I start doesn't necessarily have anything to do with where we end. If I look at what I was previous to conversion in Christ, or if I look at who I came from or where they come from, and I say, well, there's some stuff I don't want any part of, that's fine. Their history based on that name was not illustrious and glorious. It wasn't something they would have been proud of. But they didn't follow their forebears' lead. They were his sons, and they are now part of this entourage in the temple in God's house regularly singing and declaring God's praise and worship in the house. So when our psalmist goes up, he's going to be hearing some of those guys singing. I love, love the thought. It didn't determine their origin, didn't determine where they ended up. Well, look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, these lines are lovely, and they're, they're lovely as an opening to songs, uh, contemporary songs as well. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You know, when the psalmist talks about God's house, his court, it elicits this emotion. He calls them, it's a beloved place. It's a place that has his affections engaged. So as soon as he starts talking or thinking about going up to God's house, his affections are engaged. In verse 1, he says, his God is, uh, Lord is all caps there in your Bible. So Yahweh or Jehovah, God's personal covenant name. And the ESV, I think NASB probably does too, uses this descriptive term, uh, Lord of hosts. Uh, that's always left me a little flat. So I prefer Lord of armies. Lord of armies with the thought that being this. As the psalmist is thinking about the God that he knows and worships, the God whose house he's going to celebrate in, he says he's the God of armies. And if I'm, I, excuse me, if I'm a Jew living in the land of promise, the God of armies is Yahweh who defeated the armies of Egypt, the most powerful army in the world of their day, in liberating my forebears out of Egypt. And then that same God of armies was the one who sent a destroying angel to slay the firstborn whose life weren't protected by the blood of the Lamb at the end of the Exodus account while they were still in Egypt. And then this is the same God, the God of armies, who came in and led Israel. Remember, this isn't a warrior nation. They've got to go through battles. But the God of armies overcomes walled cities, giants, and all the armies that, if you remember the, the account in Joshua, that coalesce, that come together, to defeat, to put to flight Israel's army, and yet Israel's army wins all those battles. His God is the God of armies. His God is powerful. His God is the one that's delivered them and set up a home that he can call home. This is the safe place his God has created for them. And it says he longs or he, he hungers. Guys, this would be something like a pain. You know, if you're really hungry for something particular, nothing else will satisfy. I'm, I'm hungry for a particular thing. It's all I can think about. Or also, the emotion that's described in this for me, a little bit like if you're newly in love, you've realized I've just met that person that I've always longed for. Well, it doesn't just affect your mind, your intellect. It's your emotions. It's your body. You feel it. Maybe you feel giddy or you feel enthusiasm or excitement. But it's your body and soul that are engaged as you think about that person. Well, that's what's going on for the psalmist as he thinks about going up 
to God's house. And this is different for us today. We take a lot for granted. You know, we say theologically, God is omnipresent. So there's not a place where God isn't. So if I say, uh, I don't feel God's presence, I may not feel it, but God's present everywhere. But specifically for the Jews, you remember God said, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and I will live in your midst. And so specifically for Israel, when he's thinking about God's house, this would have been true in the wilderness when there was just a tent, but it's true when Solomon puts up the house, the temple of God. You remember, God is there in a specific way that he's not anyplace else. So if you were the high priest and you could go in in that once a year occasion into the Holy of Holies, you would have seen a visible presence of God. There would have been a glow of a light, a small cloud that glowed that God said, that is my special presence in Israel above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And in Ezekiel's prophecies, that cloud of glory that was God's special presence in a day when God said, I'm giving my people up to judgment. It's interesting because through a couple of chapters, you see this cloud of God's presence leaves the, the sanctuary area and goes above the temple area and goes above the Mount of Olives as God is leaving that house so that the Babylonians can come in and destroy it. So the psalmist knows when I go down to Jerusalem and I go to the temple courts, it's the place where God really is on earth in a way He's not any place else. So that as I go up, I'm physically drawing as close to God on earth as is possible. You know, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, the Court of the Priests, the Court of Israel, the Court of the Women, the Court of the Gentiles. He's just saying, I want to get as close in there as I can. So he's filled with affection and emotion as he thinks, I'm going to God's house to be as close to God as possible. He's enthralled with God and His glory and is so set on spending as much time as possible in His presence that it's animating everything else he does. We looked at Psalm 42. It's out of the same group of psalms probably months ago. And you remember there in a song of lament, so these psalms don't have the same emotion in them. Psalm 42 and 43, a song of lament. The psalmist says, as a deer pants for the water brook. I'm a deer, I've been running hard, and all I can think about is I've got to get a drink of water. As a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. Well, it's a lament there because he can't get there. But it's all he can think about. It's all I want. What would slake my thirst to get in God's presence? In this psalm, Psalm 84, it's the same thought. I really, really, really want to get there. And I'm getting ready to head that way now. One's a lament. One's this excited anticipation about what's, what's to come. Uh, let me ask you this. I want to ask a number of questions as we work through this morning. Um, how would I describe my own desire to experience more of God? How would, I, how would I describe, just a little introspection here, how would I describe my own sense of wanting to get as much of God as possible, as near as God as possible? What would my own sense of hunger or thirst or desire, how would I describe that for myself? What does that look like for me? What does that feel like for me? Since the closest we can come today to the psalmist's experience, and this is not apples to apples, and I get that, but the closest we come is the meeting of the local church, which is the temple of God on earth today. You have some references 
Mark said that he hopes you get the bulletin every, every week. I hope you get the bulletin every week because it has a study sheet every week. And there's verses on your study sheet. 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter 2 says that you are collectively the temple of God on earth today. So when we go to apply Psalm 84, what does that look like for us? Guys, we're talking about the local church. What does it look for me to go to God's house? I'm going to church on Sunday or Wednesday or when the saints gather together, whether it's a holiday or not. So if we find ourselves dull or indifferent to meeting God in the local church, there are some questions we can ask of ourselves and also of the church we call home. So a little introspection before we move on. Is attachment to sin displacing affection for the Lord? Guys, you know that if I'm holding on to a sin, I can't hold on to a sin and rejoice in God's presence. If I'm disobeying my father, I really don't want to get in my father's presence because I'm not feeling the love. The affections aren't there. There's a sense of, I know I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm not right. Pretty hard to want to go up to the temple and experience this joy and celebration in God's presence if I'm holding on to something I know my father doesn't want me to have or to do. Am I spiritually dull perhaps because my affections are being satisfied by other lesser pleasures, diversions, and activities? We live in arguably in the most distracting time in the history of the world. The computer age has revolutionized everyone's lives, much of which is fine, right? It's technology. There's all kinds of ways we love it. We use it. Not a problem on that. But it's also this, this rabbit hole that you can go down and never come up. And so, if you know, the people that when you go on YouTube and other sites, you know, there's very sharp, shrewd people trying to figure out how to keep you there because they're selling ads. So it's one click after another. And, and why? Well, it's just to keep you online. It's just to keep you online, one click after another. Well, that does something to your affections. It does something to your energy. You know, it, it affects us. It's not neutral in that sense. We're spending our time, our emotions, and our energy in our online activities. This is one example, but it's so pervasive, it needs to be stated. But there's all kinds of other things. I can have hobbies. I can pour my heart and my affections into all kinds of things that are fine in and of themselves, but which collectively are robbing my emotions and the value that I can experience in God's presence. He is the ultimate good. There's, there's no desire you or I can have that's higher or better or more fulfilling or sustaining than knowing God, uh, along with the, the uh, new doxology that Mark mentioned from Ephesians 3, to be full, filled up with all the fullness of God. It's to know Him. It's to be in His presence. Uh, how about this? Am I at odds with others in the church? Guys, if we're at odds with people that we would normally worship with, you go there and you cringe, don't you? You just don't want to see someone because I'm at odds or I know they're at odds with me. Or have I failed to grasp the importance God places on meeting Him in the setting of His house for the psalmist who's in the temple for us, it's the meeting of the church. Have I failed to put God's priority on his things? That's another option. So for us as individuals, there's reasons why we might not share the psalmist's enthusiasm for meeting God in God's house. But guys, sometimes too, it's two-way street, the church setting we may be going to meet God in may be deficient also. Is God's presence felt? 
Is the Holy Spirit present and active in conviction, encouragement, and direction? If I, if I come to a local church and I call that my home, and I'm there, uh, let's just say, week in and week out, and I don't hear God's voice, I don't feel His encouragement, I don't see Him at work in and through me, it's a legitimate question to say, Lord, are you showing up? Is, are there things there that are keeping us back from hearing you? That's a legitimate question. Friends, do you know that there are churches all over the United States that claim Christ but don't really own Him? And you could go there and sit and go there and sit and not hear from God. He left His temple on earth, you know. And in Revelation 2, He threatened the, the glory of the churches in my view in the seven letters is Ephesus. And He says, if you don't turn around to first love, I'm removing your candlestick, your presence, I'm taking it away. So this is a big deal. Churches can fail. Churches can fail to embrace and uphold Christ the way He calls us to. Is our joy restored? You know, one of the things when you come together... I might be convicted because God's presence is there. And conviction in that sense is a very good thing. But apart from needing to hear God's conviction, is my joy restored? Do I feel like I've met with the Lord and I've heard from Him? So we, we could, as an individual, we could have reasons why we're not sharing the psalmist's joy meeting God in God's house. But we might also say, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you had a relative where you're like, I really don't want to go to the holiday at my relative's house. Because it's not a happy setting. That could be a, a thing too as far as any local church. So the questions are worth asking. Uh, go to verses 3 and 4. These verses, the psalmist is thinking about prior times he's been in God's house. And he remembers who was there. And he thinks he'd love to trade places with the guys and the, the, uh, the animals who call God's house their home. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed or happy are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Selah. So stop and pause and think about it. He's thinking as he anticipates going up, he's thinking about the entities that are in God's house regularly and he, he thinks what a great role to have what a great house to call your home God's house itself it's also he's bringing up the birds it's as if nature was joining the choirs of singers to give God his due and he says the the birds that are nesting in and around the temple they're blessed birds and the priests and the Levites and the doorkeepers and the singers and the guards and all those who regularly attend at the temple were blessed and happy because they were in God's presence in God's house. You get to Luke 2 and the narrative in Luke's gospel where Jesus is being dedicated. Uh, you see this old guy named Simeon who's strolling through and when God fulfills a promise that he would see the Messiah before he died because he's hanging out at God's house. Or you see old Anna and it says of her night and day she's living in the courts of God's house, fasting and prayer. It's the only place she wants to live, the place she wants to call home. And while they're there, verse 4 says, ever praising, some translations, or ever singing to you. The Hebrew there is halal. We get hallelujah from that. It's the thought that I'm coming into God's presence and all I can think about is giving Him His due, is praising Him. One of the things we routinely pray 
before the service is that we can give God His due, that we don't just hear Him in the Scriptures, but that we're giving Him His due as we worship together. So pause again. What does praise to God look like in my life? Is giving God praise for who He is and what He's like? Is thanksgiving for His blessings to us a normal part of life? Do we praise? Does, is praise an adjective that describes us? Remember in John 4.23 when Jesus uh, spoke to a woman at a well, and he said, uh, the time now has come when those who worship God worship him in spirit and truth for such worshipers. That's what God's seeking, those who worship in spirit and truth. And it's a good question. Am I one of those worshipers? We use worship and praise sometimes a little bit interchangeably. Am I one of those people who is coming into God's presence and giving him his due in praise and worship? There's some references there on your study sheet you can look up later. Uh, Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So these verses now describe the psalmist's pilgrimage This is his over the river and through the woods. So he's leaving his home and now he's trekking towards Jerusalem. This would be a little bit like grandchildren heading to grandparents' house. These worshipers are thinking about the journey as they anticipate it. So guys, if I'm going to Colorado, one of the things I think about is I think about I-70. And I think about the stops, the oasis on the plains. And I think of the stops... I'm going to make, I'm thinking about the way there. Well, that's what's going on for him. It's not just the destination. It's what I'm going to do to get there and the way that I'll go home once I head back the other way. Uh, Verse six is a little bit enigmatic. We're not entirely sure what this is supposed to be just based on the word used. It says the valley of Bacaw could mean a couple of things. Could mean a dry valley where balsam trees grew. A dry area where maybe there wasn't much going on, but there were some balsam trees growing. The other thing is, based on the word itself, is that it might have been a place of weeping. So sort of a valley, a dry area of weeping. And maybe that was because there was something historically that had occurred there that brought about sadness. Whatever the event, this seems to be the implication of the description of the physical road, the place they're going to go through to get to God's house, and sort of the implication of what that looks like for them. As the worshipers travel through a barren area, their joyful, expectant presence makes the barren area seem like a vacation spot. The presence of these worshipers is spiritually like the early rains in autumn that brought life back to the desert. And if the early autumn rains are physically, materially in view also, then this is probably describing the holiday of tabernacles. So guys, when Kathy and I drive to Colorado, um, I actually enjoy the, the ride, for the record. I don't, I don't uh, feel bad about western Kansas. Um, <clears throat> but eastern Colorado is really ugly. <laughs> really ugly. And... Uh, I think the flat plains of western Kansas are prettier. But, but do I mind the, the desert of eastern Colorado? I don't mind it a bit. And why is that? 
Because as I'm going through, I'm anticipating the lush mountains. That's why. So when I go through eastern Colorado, even though, you know, the topography isn't all that, my, my experience going through that deserty topography is still joyful. It's joyous because of the anticipation that I have that this is the way to the mountains. Well, that's what he's saying. We're going through a dry desert place on our way there. And it doesn't matter. We're so filled with joy. It's as if our joy is rain that soaks into the land as we go through. Our experience, if you will, lifts the very physicality of the place we're going through. We're so filled with joy and expectation. And then verse 7, the closer they get to their destination, it says, you know, they go from strength to strength. Um, it's a little, uh, if you're on I-70, sorry. Think of this the next time you drive west on I-70, sorry. As you approach the mountains, you can see Long's Peak in the, in the distance on the north, and you can see uh, Pike's Peak in the distance on the south. Now, when I see those, I know we're still a long way away. But I can see the mountains, and that raises my enthusiasm. I go from strength to strength. It's like the kids, if they're in the back of your car, it, instead of saying, um, when are we going to get there? They say something like, we're almost there. Their enthusiasm, maybe it's dropped a little bit, but it's renewed again because we saw the peaks and we know we're approaching the place we really wanted to get. Look at verse 8 and 9. This is the psalmist at the temple. And guys, this is really short. So anticipation and thought, envy for those who call the temple home, and now the trip there, and he's there, and there's two short verses. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Say, Law, Lord, please hear me. I've come all this way. I've anticipated it. I'm in your house, and now I'm before you, and I'm praying in your presence. Would you please hear my prayer? And look at his prayer, verse 9. Behold our shield, O God, or look upon our defense. Look on the face of of your anointed. Now guys, if we say anointed today as Christians, we're almost always thinking of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. But remember that in the Old Testament, the, the king was anointed and the high priest was anointed. And there are numerous songs that talk about God's anointed as the king. And so here's the thought. If I pray for God's blessing on the king, as the life of the king goes, so goes the life of the nation. So 1 Timothy, 3, or 1 Timothy 2 tells us to pray for kings and those in authority. Why? So that you can live a quiet life in all godliness. The psalmist knows. Now, does the psalmist have, uh, maybe he's thinking about the farm. Might he have prayed for his farm? Maybe. Maybe. Did he pray for his wife's health? Maybe. Did he pray about, who knows what, a million things that might have been on his mind? He might have. But the only thing that's recorded is his prayer for the king of Israel. So this would have been a prayer, Lord, would you bless the king? And why specifically and uniquely? Because when the king is blessed, the nation is blessed. If God answers that prayer for the king to be blessed, it means blessing to the nation. So part of the point I take from this is when he came before God, he didn't just come with his own self-interest. And everybody has self-interest that we pray to God about, which is absolutely appropriate. But in this song, the only thing that's mentioned is prayer for the king for the blessing of the nation. That's significant. 
So when we pray, one, do we pray? You know, relationship with God is two-way. He talks to us primarily through Scripture. We talk to Him and we call that prayer. And so do we just talk to God? Is there a two-way communication with God because we're in a real relationship with Him? Do we pray? Just do we pray as a conversation? But also, do we know enough of God's goodness and the need that others just like us have that when we pray, we're praying for others as well? And not just that. In this, it's prayer for the leader knowing the impact leaders have on those they lead, the king. 1 Timothy 2, again, is calls Christians to pray for kings and those in authority. Political authority, civil authority. Uh, many people in this church regularly pray for the elders and the leaders in Lion and Lamb. And I can tell you, every time I hear that, I'm thrilled. Um, we don't think we're all that. We, we know ourselves, we know each other well enough to know the elders and the deacons are not all that. We want people to pray for us. And Lord, keep, keep me from sin. Keep me from blowing it. Give us the wisdom you want us to have so your people at Lion and Lamb are blessed. This is the thing. Do we pray? And when we pray, at any time, are we doing what the psalmist did? Are we praying for those who affect the lives of many so that the many can be blessed? That is a thing. Uh, ours is the age when the individual, guys, is king and when our loyalties may spread no further than our own self-interest. And yet part of the psalmist's lesson for us is that our prayers should include the good of brothers and sisters in the faith as long as the leaders who affect them in the church or out. So what does our prayer life look like? And then winding down verses 10 through 12, uh, he says a day... So he's in the court. He's prayed before God. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. If you think of a sun, it's benevolence. It's provision. If you think of a shield, it's, it's the defender of my life. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one, or happy is the one who trusts in you. You know, there's a parable. One of the parables in Matthew 13, uh, said, Jesus tells the parable and he says there was a merchant and he found one pearl of such, such surpassing magnificence and value that he sells everything else he has to buy just that one singular pearl. Well, here... The psalmist says, I've got one single request that, that uh, Lord, if I made one prayer, if you answered one prayer, if you gave me one thing, the one thing I want to do is I want to spend time in your house and your courts and your presence. It's the only thing that really matters at the end of the day. And that sounds just like David's prayer in Psalm 27, 4. So David said, if you reduce all my requests to one. What is it? It's just one thing have I asked of the Lord that may I seek that I can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord to inquire and meditate in His temple. Lord, render them all down. There's just one thing that matters and it's to be in Your presence. It's to know You. It's, it's the sum of all goods is to be blessed in God's presence. And that's what the psalmist in Psalm 84 is saying. Psalm 61.4 puts it this way. Let me dwell in your house forever or always. 
Lord, let there never be a time when I'm not in your presence where I'm not living life with you. Here's the thing. If Christ isn't our chief treasure, his people and his house aren't going to be the places we long to be. We don't love the Lord our God above all else. Hanging out with him in the midst of his children isn't going to seem like our treasure. Here's a here's a, a correlation. I think there's a direct correlation. I don't say it's it's one to one necessarily, but the degree to which we love God and value Christ has some direct correlation to the joy we find in the assembly of his saints. The degree to which we love God and Christ has some direct linkage to the degree that we desire to meet with God in his house, which is the local church. The psalmist would trade any number of days for one day in God's house. And I don't care for the translation here in the ESV. And this is common. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And, and it sounds like I'd rather be in God's house than among the wicked. And I don't think that's it at all. I think this is what he's saying. Whether he's a doorkeeper or not. He says, I would rather be standing on the edge of God's temple and courts. I'm not in. I'm not enjoying the fullness of the blood, but I'm on the edge and I can look in and I can see God's house. I'd rather be standing there than any place else on earth and all the joys and all the comforts and all the pleasures that would be had in any other setting, I'd trade them all to just be on the verge of God's presence. So it, it doesn't have to be the wicked. It's those who don't love God. It's those who don't value God. He says all the comforts, all the pleasures I could have in some other setting, I'd trade them all just to be on the outskirts of God's presence where I know He's there and I'm here. I trade it all. Here's a question, and I do hope this is convicting. Uh, what are we willing to trade for time with God in His temple? I'm thinking of things like kids' soccer games on Sunday mornings. I'm thinking of the Kansas City Chiefs football games Sunday afternoon. I'm thinking of a good lie-in. I'm a little tired, and I'm going to just sleep in bed this morning. <clears throat> now just let that soak. I don't know what it'd be for you. It might be something else. So just let that sit there. Just, just hold that thought for just a minute. Am I selling God cheaply? Okay. Because he's not worth showing up for. Because I don't get enough out of it. In his temple, which is the church. Am I selling God cheaply? So hold that thought. It's like a breath. Hold it. Now let it out slowly. Now. Some of you are saying that that's unfair. And it could be unfair. Are there times in which other things come up that we're not going to be with the rest of the saints in the church? Absolutely. It's a given. Life is complicated. Absolutely, it's a given. The question for me, though, would be what is it I'm willing to trade for showing up in God's presence? Because we have options. There's some things that demand I've got to be someplace else. There's a responsibility. There's a relationship. Whatever. Something has happened. I've got to be away. But what are we willing to trade meeting God in his house for? That's my question. What does that look like? What does that look like? Verse 11, the psalmist understands that all his blessings, all his pleasures, his ability to live and experience the pleasures 
of labor and family, friends and times of celebration is all the fruit of knowing God in this life. It's all the fruit of knowing God. James 2, 17 says the same thing. And then verse 12, that's why he closes on that note that it's the one who trusts in God whose reference for life is the Lord himself who knows true blessing. So here's a question. If blessing, if happiness, if success in life as God counts it is all predicated on trusting him. Have I trusted Christ for salvation? Guys, everything else is gravy. Have I trusted Christ for salvation? Do I know if I died today, I'd be received by God, my father in the courts of heaven where there are pleasures and joys forevermore because Jesus died and he died for me because Jesus was buried. He was buried for me because Jesus rose and he rose for me because I know Christ. Christ is my savior. Am I trusting Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Not only that, for us, are we trusting Christ for our peace, our joy, our satisfactions, our needs, and our wants? If I'm not married and I want to be married, am I trusting God for satisfaction and peace and joy in my life? I'm married. If I'm married and wished I weren't, am I trusting God for joy and for whatever that looks like in my marriage? Whatever the situation in our life is, are we trusting God? Because the psalmist says that's where there's blessing. That's where there's joy. That's where there's happiness. That's where you can say no matter what else is going on in life, I have a sense of success and purpose because I'm trusting God. I'm not in control. God's in control, but I am trusting God. Therein lies success. Now, I want to take just a few minutes in winding down because I want to do something. I just want to be a little careful and I want to qualify a little bit about what we're talking about this morning. In applying this, as is a challenge in all kinds of Old Testament texts, it's not an apples to apples, right? Because we're in a different time, a different dispensation under a different covenant. Life is a little different. To apply this to our own day, we do move from the thoughts of the grandeur and glory of Solomon's temple, for instance, down to we're in a building that's not grand and glorious. And we're meeting with other people just like us. And they're God's dwelling place today. Fill us up with the fullness of God. Uh, Colossians 1, Christ in us is the hope of glory. It's not apples to apples, is it? Our heart isn't entranced by the, by the grandeur of the facility we're going in. That doesn't raise us up. What does this look like for us so that the psalmist's experience and desires to be with God are something that we can actually relate to? We may consider many of those we meet with in the church unattractive, troublesome, and even odious. And some people might think of us that same way. Because God's temple today isn't dead stones, but living ones, the thought of being overjoyed in God's house today may be a hope or an expectation that feels like a hot air balloon that's got too much ballast and it just can't get off the ground. You know, what is it that goes on that keeps us from the psalmist's joy? Alan Ross says this, and this is as he's talking about applying Psalm 84 to our day and our time in a local church setting. He says all this, of course, so the, the, the enthusiasm of the psalmist and the joy and the affections engaged towards meeting with God in his house. He says all of this assumes that the house of the Lord, that is the local church, is functioning as a true sanctuary where the presence of God is manifest in the prayers, as in the psalmist. And the praises of the people. 
The Lord makes his presence known in many places, but where the people of God assemble to worship, his presence may be more keenly felt. You might say that I met the Lord this morning in my quiet time, and I hope you do, and I hope there's that sense of it was glorious, it was joyful, it was convicting, it was helpful. But God shows up in the assembly of gathered Christians to his house in a way he doesn't show up to you and I singularly at home. He says this assumes a certain level of spiritual devotion, something that has not always been present. It is the task of the leaders of the church to seek to make the church setting and its services genuinely prayerful. And it's the task of believers to come to the sanctuary with praises on their lips for God's answers to their prayers and blessings on their lives. Now, the psalmist is in all likelihood thinking about a national feast day, a holiday, going to Jerusalem. And the song we started with was Thanksgiving. Every Sunday is not Thanksgiving, right? Every day is not going to grandmother's house. And every time we gather as a church is not the sense of it's tabernacles. Okay, I get that. So, so this isn't an apples to apples comparison. Life is hard and it takes a toll. And by the way, uh, you read the Psalms and the Psalms, like all the rest of Scripture, is absolutely bluntly honest. And so what do you see in other Psalms? Depression, trouble, frustration, anger, all, lack of understanding. You see it all. It's all expressed there. So we're not saying we're always happy, clappy because we're coming to a church service on Sunday morning or any other time. We're not making things up as we go here. But we want to say with the psalmist, if I'm happy and clappy, that's great. And I'm going to grandmother's house. I'm going to God's house. That's great. If I'm not happy and clappy, guess where I'm still going to go? I'm still going to grandma's house and I'm still going to God's house. Happy, clappy or not. Every day isn't Thanksgiving. We recognize that. If we can't rise to the psalmist's joys on any given Sunday, I would tell you this, come anyway. Sit in the back, lay yourself before God in your need and soak in. Here's the thing. Jesus said of two or three and two or three gather in my name, I'm present. I'm present. And so if you say, um, I'm not happy, I'm not joyful. I'm not expecting. My emotions aren't engaged. I'm dragging myself in. I tell you, drag yourself in and sit on the back row. And if somebody says, how are you doing? You can say, not well. Thanks for asking. Or you can say, you don't have to explain. You can say, thanks for asking. Now pray for me. You can sit. If you can't rise to praising God, you can sit there. Scripture says in Psalms, God inhabits the praises of his people. You come in and when you sit there and the saints are praising, you will benefit because you'll feel God's presence. And when God's word is preached, you'll hear something, whether you intended or whether you were thinking about it. Sometimes people will say, you know, it sounded like you were speaking right to me this morning. And you know, the guy teaching, he has no idea. I have no idea on any given Sunday what's going to be meaningful to anyone. No idea. But God promises to use his word. So if you come in and you're hearing God's word and you're in the midst of praise and worship, you will be encouraged and God, you'll draw near to God and God will keep his promise and he will draw near to you. So even if we say it's not Thanksgiving at grandmother's house and it's not Solomon's temple and I'm not feeling the psalmist's enthusiasm, I still tell you the same thing. Come, come to God's house, sit in the back, 
Sit and sow and you will be encouraged and God will meet you right where you're at. Amen. It's a given. Absolutely. Yep. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who labor, you're, you're weary, you're heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And friends, there's no better place to find that than in God's house, which, believe it or not, is a group just like we have right here this morning. So if you would rise with me, we're going to read from Hebrews 10 together as the worship team comes up.